Good morning. Our reading today is Psalm 130, a song of ascents. Out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness that you may be feared. I wait for the Lord. My soul waits, and in his word I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Well, good morning, church. For those of you that may not know me, uh, my name is Chris McKim, and I'm the worship coordinator here at Redeemer. But I am also an undercare candidate within our presbytery, moving toward licensure and ordination as a teaching elder for gospel ministry. And it is my privilege this morning to open God's word for us. Now, this being the fourth week of Advent, focusing on love, uh, we enter this fourth week. Let's take a moment, though, to review where we've come from. In Advent week one, Mike Pollard opened Psalm 97 for us, and he showed us the width, the depth of hope that we have in Christ alone, and how this produces joy and thanksgiving in our hearts. <clears throat> Two weeks ago, Pastor Paul showed us that true peace, real shalom, from Psalm 122 is found in the ascent to the house of the Lord, where we find Jesus ruling on the throne of David. And last week, as Paul preached from Psalm 98, we saw that true joy is not found from within us, but outside of us. Namely, in worshiping Jesus, he is the true source of joy in our hearts, and he is the one that causes us to shout to the Lord, for so great a salvation. And this week with our Advent theme centering on love, if you guys would put that slide up, we'll focus on three points this morning. Number one, we will see our great need. Number two, our great assurance. And three, the greatest love of all. So as we open Psalm 130, we see from the slide that it is a psalm of ascents. It is a psalm that would have been sung as the faithful journeyed up to Jerusalem, just like Pastor Paul mentioned in a previous sermon. Very much like our time of season, our Christmas carols. But this Psalm 130 would also be classified as a penitential psalm because it opens with a lament. Verse 1, out of the depths I cry to you, O Lord. The depths being a metaphor for the sea. The sea that is cold and dark. It's surrounding David on all sides, swallowing him up. It reminds us of an earlier psalm of David, Psalm 69, where he says, Save me, O God, for the waters have come up to my neck. I I sink in deep mire where there is no foothold. 
I have come into deep waters and the floods sweep over me. I am weary with my crying out. Now, this very psalm, Psalm 69, actually was the basis of a song uh, written by Charlie Peacock and then redone by Russ Taft several years ago. Some of you closer to my age may know the song. But it basically says, the water is up to my neck. I'm sinking in the deep. There is no foothold to find anywhere. And then it proceeds into the chorus. It says, but I'm down in the lowlands where the water is deep. Hear my cry. Hear my shout. Save me. Save me. David is comparing the weight of his sin to the helplessness and hopelessness of what it is like to drown. And this feeling of drowning reminds me of a time when I was 12 years old. We were living in an area of Northern California called Lake Wildwood and would spend most of our weekends at this little beach area called Vista Point. And at Vista Point, there was a roped off swimming area to keep the boats away. But if you swam to the middle of the rope, you could still stand. So after many weeks of swimming out to the rope and turning around and waving at my mom, she finally says to me, hey, let's swim out to the rope together. And then she would ask me, are you sure, are you sure we can stand up? Yes, I'm sure. I wasn't sure. But I need to point out, too, that my mom at this point had had a traumatic experience in the past where she did almost drown as a high schooler. So she was hesitant, and she rarely got into the water where the water was above her knee. And that day, there just happened to be a large group of kids, probably a holiday weekend, playing in the middle of the swimming area. So we couldn't beeline for the middle. We veered a little bit left toward the left corner. And what I didn't know that day was that as we swam out there, that the lake dropped off more severely. We touched the rope, went to stand up, nothing. We both went under for a moment. But I'll never forget the look on my mom's face. It was sheer panic. It was desperation. And I was right next to her. So what happened? She reached out for me. She grabbed me by the shoulder and pushed me down under the water. Now, a trained lifeguard will tell you, don't go near a drowning victim. This is why you will see a lifeguard carrying a buoy with a rope, with a lanyard. Because what you're trained to do is you're supposed to swim out to a drowning victim and then catch their attention, throw them the buoy, but in no way is your life in danger. And then once they've calmed down, you can swim them back to shore. I didn't have the luxury of having one of those that day since I was right next to her. But by the providence of God, when I was pushed under, again, with my eyes open looking up, it was about a foot under the water. My feet hit ground. And I immediately grabbed my mother by the underneath of her arms, and I walked her up the shoreline. I was holding my breath the whole time, but at the same time, I was crying like David, Lord, save me. I hope I can get out of this. And as I, I was able to walk her up high enough, I was able to toss her closer to shore and come up for air myself. Many of the people that were with us saw what was going on. They'd heard the calamity. They came rushing to us, and they came to our rescue. But as I sat there on the shore, 
for any of you that have dealt with anything traumatic, you always have those what if moments, don't you? My thought was, whew, what if there was no ground? What if I couldn't touch? Things would have been different. This is what David is crying about. It's his desperation. He says in verse 2, O Lord, hear my voice. Let your ears be attentive to the voice of my pleas for mercy. He's drowning in his sin. He cannot save himself from the deep. And I say this at this point in the sermon that maybe this is how some of us feel this Advent day. Our minds tell us we should be joyful, but... Maybe we're feeling the pains of loneliness. Or maybe depression has a hold of us, and we can't quite seem to shake it. Maybe we're grieving a loss, and it's surrounding us like being swallowed up by the sea. And we wonder if we will ever feel whole again. David's lament then turns from lament to confession. Verse 3, that moment of contemplation. If you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? David shifts away from his own lament, his own plight, and he says, we're all in the same boat. There's not a one of us who are outside of generation, natural generation, being born in Adam that are not born with this curse of sin. And Lord, if you should hold our sins against us, who could stand? No one. Paul tells us in Romans 3 that there is no one who's righteous. No, not one. This is not Paul playing meanie, but this is Paul playing prosecuting attorney on the Lord's behalf, saying this is the state of us. This is David's confession this morning. We are all drowning. We are all desperate. None have a foothold. But in this moment, this cry of desperation, this lament and this confession moved into point number two, our great assurance. Look at verse four. But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. As John Calvin stated in his exposition of Psalm 130, In verse 4, he says this, There's no honoring of God unless his mercy be acknowledged, upon which God's honor is founded and established. God is holy, and as the writer of Hebrews tells us, he is a consuming fire. But as we have seen from the garden until today and will in the future, that this Yahweh... This God of David is merciful. And until the return of Jesus, he will continue to show his mercy because this is who he is. This is the Yahweh that David knew when he wrote before in Psalm 51, Created me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. God is perfect in his judgments, and yet he is abundantly merciful to the undeserving. 
like Adam, like Noah, like Abraham, like Moses, like Isaiah, like King David, like you and me. And this move toward this undeserved grace and mercy causes a shift in David's proclamation. It causes him not to feel surrounded and constrained anymore. The water is not up to his neck, but he can rest in the Lord. Verses 5 and 6, I wait for the Lord. How hard is it for us to wait when we are anxious? It's brutal, isn't it? But David says, my soul waits, and in his word, I hope. The deep is still surrounding him. It's still engulfing him. The circumstances have not changed. But his perspective on who he belongs to, who is sustaining him, whose covenantally faithful word is he relying on, In his word, I hope. My soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning. More than watchmen for the morning. There's that little musical trick of repeating a line for emphasis. But David was well aware of watchmen in the city of David, in Jerusalem, waiting on the wall, preparing for anything, attackers, mischief, in the cold, in the dark, But those men on the wall knew one thing, the sun was going to rise and their shift would be over and someone would relieve them and they could crash in their bed and rest. David is saying that surer than the sun rising, he himself is willing to wait because Yahweh is covenantally faithful and will keep his promises to deliver his children from their sins. The Apostle Paul echoes this in Romans 5, while we were still sinners, Christ died for the ungodly. Even Matthew in his genealogy, and again, during Christmas Advent time, sometimes we may be prone to skip that long, long list of names. Matthew says this at the beginning of his gospel, showing us the mighty hand of God on display in recreation, he states this, the book of genealogy of of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. He says further down in verse 17, he says, so all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations. From David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations. And from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Three groups of 14. For some of you math whizzes or maybe you NFL aficionados who know all the scoring, it's six groups of seven. Three groups of 14. What is the significance of this? Beloved, this is Matthew showing us the echoes of creation, six days and a rest, on display in God's recreation in bringing his sin-bearing Messiah, 
to bear for us. From the garden that was promised, there is one, the seed of the woman who will crush the serpent's head. Matthew was saying, that day has come. Here he is, low and born in a manger. And finally, we come to point number three, the greatest love of all. Uh, Sorry, Whitney. Sorry, you Whitney Houston fans. Uh, The greatest love of all is not inside of me. It is found in the one who Isaiah declares is mighty to save. Look at verse 7 and 8. O Israel, hope in the Lord, for with the Lord there is steadfast love, and with him is plentiful redemption, and he will redeem Israel from all his iniquities. Right? There it is again. What? Steadfast love. This hesed love. This all-consuming love. This steadfast shalom. This mercy undeserved. And with him is plentiful redemption. Our New American Standard Version translates this abundant redemption. But we get it, right? It's all-encompassing. We see this throughout the Gospels, right? We see Yahweh in the flesh walking on water. And Peter stepping out of the boat, but soon he's plunging below the waterline, crying out to be rescued just like King David was. And as sure as the sun will rise, there is Jesus, Yahweh in the flesh, according to John 12, reaching into the deep to rescue the one that belongs to him. This is the ultimate picture of love, beloved. Have any of us ever received a gift that we were just so blown away? Maybe we didn't even know we wanted This is the picture that David is proclaiming to us today. This notion of plentiful redemption, even though he is weighed down, all he can't he can't see past his sins, but he knows that in his hope in the one who is able to provide plentiful redemption, he has hope, he has relief. I want to point something out too that the text actually does not say. It does not say that he might redeem Israel. It doesn't say that with the Lord there might be steadfast love and redemption. It says that he will. There is a surety. Hebrews 1 tells us that after Jesus made purification for sin, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Later, Hebrews 7 tells us that he, Jesus, is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Joseph was told by the angels, she, Mary, will bear a son, and you will call his name Jesus, for he might? No. He will save his people from their sins. And Mary was told that he, Jesus, will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. 
and of his kingdom there will be no end. This is who is in the manger that silent night. This is the one who John the Baptist would later declare, behold the Lamb of God, who might take away the sins of... No. Behold the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Beloved, the greatest gift that we can have this Advent morning is recognizing that our greatest need is one that we cannot give to each other. We can't give it to ourselves. Our need is plentiful redemption and in the Lord Jesus, we see this. John Murray, in his great work, Redemption Accomplished and Applied, says this. Christ did not come to put men in a redeemable position, but to redeem to himself a people. We have the same result when we properly analyze the meaning of expiation, propitiation, and reconciliation. Christ did not come to make sins exhibitable. He came to expiate sin, or a clearer definition, he came to atone. Not just the possibility of atonement, he came to atone. Christ did not come to make God reconcilable, he reconciles us to God by his own blood. This is the greatest love of all. David is prophesying under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that his greater son, Jesus, the one we sing about, right? Hail to the Lord's anointed. Hail David's greater son. This Jesus is the plentiful redemption that was promised, and he will redeem those that the Father has given him. Jesus Messiah, name above all names, Blessed Redeemer, Emmanuel, God with us. The rescue for sinners. All our hope is in you. Jesus, by his work and his person, is our only hope. Jesus is our true peace. Jesus is our only source of real joy. And Jesus, in the greatest show of love, rescues us from our greatest need, from our sin, for our sins to be taken away, washed away by his own blood, and for his righteousness alone to cover us. Beloved, O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. O come, let us adore him. Christ the Lord for he alone is worthy. Let's pray. Glorious triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, I praise you for the riches of redemption that you've lavished on us in the gospel. Father, for planning such a stunning salvation. Lord Jesus, for accomplishing all things necessary for our complete and whole salvation. And Holy Spirit, for faithfully applying the work of Jesus to us. This morning, Lord, I wish I had adequate words to express the gratitude of my heart, but my words fail me. We lift our, we lift our eyes, we lift our hearts, we lift our hands to you. We worship you this Sabbath day 
in the name of Jesus, who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Amen.